I haven't been coming regularly since about 2014 or so. But it, it, it's very, very difficult. You know, you you get to the time of year when they're getting ready to go, and you want to go as well. You know, mm. yeah. You know, you can't, but you want to go as well. Mm. It gets a hold of you. It really does. Mm. And um, so it's, it's nice to come back, even on an occasional basis. But for me, it's um, it's. I think you can encapsulate it in about four sounds. It's all about the different sounds that you get, and the, the sort of things that you hear as you're lying in your tent at night. Mm. And you've got the seals out on the skerries, which to me is the best thing of all. You've got the inevitable corn crake. <laughs> <laughs> the incessant corn crake. <laughs> you've got the sound of the bank shear water. <laughs> and you've got the cheering of the storm petrels, and you've got the, the drumming and woodwind sounds of the snow. Yeah. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Wild Voices Project Podcast. And this is definitely a different episode from normal. Back in May 2018, I was lucky enough to be given the chance to join a group of seabird ringers and surveyors on their trip to the Treshnish Isles off the west coast of Scotland. So the Treshnish Isles are a small archipelago of uninhabited islands just off the west coast of the Isle of Mull, which is itself off the west coast of Scotland. It's part of the Inner Hebrides. 2018 was an important year for seabirds. It was the year of the once-in-a-decade census of seabird populations around the coast of the UK. Our seabirds are a really important bellwether for the health of our oceans and our seas. And all around the coast of the UK, lots of our seabird populations are in big decline, in part due to intensive fishing methods which have reduced the populations of the fish that they feed on in part due to climate change and moving populations of plankton and species of fish that they feed on like sand eel and seabirds like the puffin and the kittiwake are having to travel increasing distances sometimes shocking distances in order to find food for themselves or for their chicks and this puts a huge burden on the seabirds and means they have to expend huge amounts of energy putting their health their survival and their breeding success at risk so the decadal seabird census is a really important piece of scientific work and there's no better place to go and do it than the treshnish isles which are protected uh, for their importance as a wildlife habitat and which are visited every single day in the summer at least, by tourists who are drawn there by the attraction of seeing tens of thousands of seabirds on the islands, which is an incredible spectacle. I was there for a week during May, and I went back later for two further weeks in July, but I was there during May to survey one seabird species in particular, the Manx shearwater. The Manx shearwater is a bird that migrates to and from the coast of South America, so it spends the winter uh, there in the southern Atlantic Ocean, 
and it spends its spring and summer here in the UK breeding around our shores. And a huge percentage, north of 80% of the world population of the Manx Shearwater is found around the coasts of Britain and Ireland. So we're a really important country for its survival and its health as a species, and that makes the census, the survey that we conducted, really important. Manx Shearwaters are quite unusual as seabirds. They don't live on cliffs like kittiwakes or fulmers or puffins. Uh, They live in burrows and are nocturnal. This makes them fairly difficult to survey, as you'll hear during the course of the episode. And the surveying that we did involves walking up and down the entire island, essentially, looking for what seem like suitable burrows, and playing a recording of the Manx Shearwater call into the burrows, and waiting to hear for a response. You'll hear more about the survey technique during the course of the episode, but you're also going to hear just what an incredible place the Tretanish Isles, and in particular Lunga, the main island that we were based on, are. They're full, not just of seabirds, but also of lots of other incredible wildlife, from twite, to meadow pipits, to skylarks, to ravens, to peregrine falcons, to otters and dolphins, to eagles. In fact, on our first boat trip out to the islands at the start of the week in May, we were in one of the smaller boats, one of the faster boats as well, and we were speeding along out to Lunga with our kit in the boat, and four dolphins came and started swimming alongside the boat. And as they did that, two of them leapt clear out of the water, right next to the boat. It was just the most amazing way to be chaperoned to the islands. The weather was incredible. It was hot. It was sunny. The sea was calm. And as we drew up to the islands, Arctic terns were diving into the clear crystal blue waters. It was just amazing. But we were then dumped on the island with a week's worth of kit. Uh, I was fairly nervously and uh, clumsily, let's be honest, clambering my way across the slippy boulder beach. And then we had to move all of our week's worth of kit up to the top of the cliff into our base camp, a job which took seven or eight of us about four hours to do. And that was just the start. The hard work was all to come. But despite that, these trips that I took last year were, I think, the most incredible, the most enjoyable short trips that I've ever done in my life. And I want to say a big thanks to Tourist Mara, the boat company, who took us out to the islands. And you can find them by googling Tourist Mara, which is T-U-R-U-S-M-A-R-A. And you can book trips across to the islands through their website. I want to say a big thanks to the Joint Nature Conservation Committee, to Scottish Natural Heritage and to the Hebridean Trust who supported the trips, who take uh, take care of the data and who process it, and to the Hebridean Trust who own the islands and grant us access to them. And to all the amazing people who I worked with over the course of the three weeks that I was on the islands during the summer and particularly to Tim Dixon, who has been going to the islands for several years and who put a huge amount of effort and time into organising the trips, 
making sure that everyone was as effective as possible and got as much enjoyment from them as possible as well. And to everyone that I was on the islands with too, I learned a huge amount from the talented, skilled, knowledgeable people that I spent a large portion of my summer with and had a great time getting to know them as well. And towards the end of this episode, you'll hear a quite poignant interview from uh, Dennis Cooper, who's been going to the islands himself for several decades, and despite being in his 70s, was still up and down the cliffs with the rest of us, but who felt that this year might might be his swan song year in terms of visiting the islands. And we had quite a poignant conversation on the beach at the end of the week as we were waiting to be collected. That's towards the end of the episode. So I've tried to do something quite different here. I've tried to encapsulate the magic, the wonder and the spectacle of the Tretenshiles through the form of audio, through some conversations, but also through some recordings of the noises that you can hear if you spend some time there. I hope that it works and I hope that you enjoy it. And I'll say what I normally say, which is that the Wild Voices Project podcast tells the stories of the people saving nature. You can find us online at wildvoicesproject.org and on Twitter at wildvoicesproj. And you can subscribe in iTunes or in Stitcher. Without any further ado, I think let's dive in to this adventure on Puffin Island. Twenty past five in the morning on Friday the twenty fifth of May. I think I've got everything in the car. I've got my camping gear, camping bag, everything that's in that. Just carrying my camera bag. I've got my camping chair. I need to grab my wellies. My wellies are soaking wet because they've been sitting out in the rain. Uh, I've got my other rucksack which I meant to put away. Uh, And Dad's just brought me the plastic flask in which I've just decanted the 18-year-old single malt whiskey, which is the most essential item. just arrived on the island of Lunga, which is part of the Treshnish Isles, a small archipelago of islands just off the west coast of the Isle of Mull in Scotland. And I'm pretty exhausted because we've just carried all the stuff that we're going to need to live on the island for a week up from the boulder beach at the bottom of the island all the way up the cliff to the set of abandoned buildings Uh, that were formerly inhabited on the island at the top of the cliff and that's taken four or five of us about three or four hours to do back and forth up the cliff so that's pretty exhausting but the journey over to the island was so worth it so we set off 
yesterday morning from the West Midlands, drove all the way up to Oban, which is on the mainland. Then we stayed there overnight in a youth hostel. Then we got the ferry, the Kalmak ferry, across the Isle of Mull. Drove at fairly breakneck speed across the island. During that drive, I managed to spot a sea eagle, a white-tailed eagle, from the window of the car. And then made it just in time to meet up with Ian and Colin from Tourist Mara uh, Boat Tours. And Ian took us... Well, took... uh, took four of us actually in his uh, in his fast boat not on the main tourist trip and took us straight across to Treshnish to the Isle of Lunga where he dropped off us and our stuff and we were then reunited with the other members of our group who'd been on the slightly more scenic route around the islands on a second boat with the tourists with the rest of the stuff and the reason that the trip was so worth it was because as we got the boat across from Mull to Lunga, two bottlenose dolphins started swimming alongside the boat and jumping really high, clear of the water next to us. And it was just incredible. I've only seen dolphins once before in my life. And um, it was one of my, it is one of my most treasured wildlife memories. And seeing them again was just amazing. Uh, and those two dolphins were joined by a couple more and it clearly became it quickly became clear that it was a pod of four dolphins in total anyway if that's uh, uh, any sign of what the rest of the week is going to be like then i think i can expect this to be one of the best trips that i've ever been on One of the most enjoyable aspects of living, of wild camping on an island for a week was living in the abandoned stone cottages that were built a couple of hundred years ago or something and have been abandoned for at least several decades that are no longer intact, don't have roofs anymore. But on the biggest one, which probably used to be a small stable for livestock, we throw up a tarpaulin roof for cover we put that on there as a sort of semi-permanent feature for the summer and we use that main cottage or bothy as our lab quote-unquote where we do our bird ringing as our kind of living room and as our kitchen dining room area as well particularly when the weather outside is utterly crap Um, and one of the great pleasures in the morning was waking up wandering over to the main bothy and partaking in Uh, a cooked breakfast and a cup of hot coffee and if it had rained overnight one of the best features of island life was that small puddles of water would have gathered on the top of the tarpaulin which you would have to empty off because the roof would begin to leak but you always wanted to leave a few small ones behind as well because the small flocks of twite that lived on the island would come and drink and bathe in those small puddles. And because the tarpaulin was semi-translucent, you could stand inches beneath three or four twite, watching them bathe and drink in those small small puddles. 
Anyway, it was wonderful to to walk into the Bothy, particularly on a cold, wet morning with a long day's work ahead of you, uh, and from a few yards away, hear the sound and smell the scent of sizzling eggs or bacon. Right, Tim, can you tell me about, or tell me when you first came to Lunga? I first came to Lunga in, I think, 2002. And have you been most years since then? I've been every year bar once since then, when my, and that year was when my son was born. Yeah, that's fair enough. And can you say a little bit about um, what we're doing here this week? Yep, this week we're doing our best to do a, a full census of the island uh, of the island's Manx Shearwater population. Um, Manx Shearwaters are um, difficult to census for various reasons that we might talk about in a minute. Um, but because they're difficult to census, they get census infrequently on a, a, a national level mm. um, so this year and next year um, an attempt is being made to um, do a full UK census of Max Shearwaters which will be the first one since 2000 and when you say um, islands we're in the Treshnish Isles and we're on Lunga but ideally we would try later in the week to get to some of the other islands if we have time right? We would, although as far as we know, um, the vast majority of the population of Manx Shearwaters is actually on Lunga, mm-hmm. um, or was on Lunga in 2000, but it, um, they may have colonised the other islands since then, so we, uh, we're concentrating on Lunga, but we do need, if we can, to get out to the other islands to, mm. uh, to see whether they're there or not. And could you say a bit more about why and how we're doing the census this week? Um, we're doing it this week because um, in terms of the, the occupancy rate um, this is the optimum time to do it that, that is you are most likely to encounter Manx Shearwaters at this stage in the breeding season mm-hmm. um, and also um, combined with that it's easier to census them at this time of year because the vegetation is low and we census them um, by uh, trying to find their breeding burrows mm. actually waters are um, awkward little devils uh, <laughs> in as much as they nest in burrows underground um, and they only come ashore um, or leave the island under cover of darkness so you don't actually see the Manx Shearwaters when you're doing the survey you're looking for burrows um, and trying to work out whether those burrows are occupied or not and we've been doing that for the past three, two or three days by playing tapes down holes yeah so yeah. you play a tape down a hole um, and um, if it's occupied you hope that either the male or the female um, will um, shout back at the tape that you're uh, playing at it, and that builds up a picture over the over the island of 
the sort of rate of occupancy there is and the minimum level of the population there might be. Yeah, so it's only a minimum yeah. population estimate. Could you say a little bit more about their, their ecology and where they go when they're not on the island? Um, okay, so while they're breeding, then they're tied to um, quite a relatively small radius of the island because they you know, they can't go too far otherwise they wouldn't be able to get back in time uh, or sufficiently often to be able to feed their rapidly growing chicks so they're uh, during the breeding season they're, they're fairly well constrained to the waters um, of northwest Scotland but outside the breeding season they are immense ocean travellers so it's thought that most of um, the Manx Shearwaters breeding along um, western Britain, the western seaboard of Britain, um, shoot off and spend their winter um, off the Brazilian coast. So they um, they cross right the way across the Atlantic, um, spend their time tootling around um, off Brazil. Um, they probably coast south originally um, down to West Africa, mm. then do a little trip across the Atlantic to Brazil. Um, and then in the spring, um, they go north uh, up the South American and then the US coast um, and then flip back across the Atlantic when they get to um, our sort of latitude. So during the course of the year, they describe a great big circle um, down one side of the Atlantic, across up the other side and across again. And do we know what they feed on or how they feed, whether it's at the surface or whether they're diving right down to the seabed or...? No, they're, ma they're mainly surface feeders, um, feeding usually on um, small uh, fish, shoaling fish mm. often. Um, so no, they don't dive, they don't plunge dive like a lot of the other seabirds do. Although they're capable of plunge diving, it doesn't actually take them very deep. Um, um, and for people who may not have heard of one before or may not have seen one, could you describe what they look like? Um, I suppose the easiest way to describe them is they're like a miniature albatross. Um, so they're black on top, white yep. underneath, um, uh, like most albatrosses are. They're albatross shaped, so they've got long, thin wings, um, which are adapted uh, for soaring um, close to the soaring, but soaring close to the water. Um, and the wingspan is probably. Um, a little bit less than a meter um, and they've got long cigar shaped bodies um, probably about 30 to 35 centimeters long um, so because the census hasn't been done for 18 years we don't know much about the UK population trend and do we know any more about the global population trend or is it similar in that we're not very sure um, no we don't know about either um, but it has to be said that the the big bulk of the global population of Manx Shearwaters nests in the UK right. anyway um, there are a few elsewhere but I think we have about 75-80% of the UK uh, population of Manx Shearwaters and no we don't really know much about uh, the population trends um, at all mm. so hopefully we will um, yeah. in a couple of years time yeah um, and you've been so you've been coming to the island since islands since did you say 2002? Yeah, two thousand and two. Yeah, ish. Um, so could you say a bit about the logistics of being here and the camp that we're sitting in and how we get here and that sort of stuff? Um, 
Yeah, so it's logistically quite challenging. This is a uninhabited offshore island. Um, no electricity, no water, um, no shop, no pub. More specific. <laughs> um, so um, to get here, most most people are coming long distances. Where we end up in minibuses. Um, uh, trying to get across to Oban, then it's a Calmac ferry from Oban across to Mull, and then drive across to the other side of Mull, um, take all the gear, which is uh, a substantial amount of gear, and all the food, which is a substantial amount of food, plus water, um, onto a smaller boat. Uh, we use Torres Mara um, to get us across to the islands and then um, across to the Trechnish. Um, we get landed um, obviously at sea level and unfortunately our camp which is in the old ruined village is not at sea level it's substantially higher than sea <laughs> level uh, which yeah. means that we have to then cart all our stuff to the top of the island um, and then set up camp <laughs> um, and we've got uh, we're using some of the old previously occupied houses and bothies to yep, use our some, kind of base. Some people pitch their tents inside the shells of the, the old houses and we use the most upstanding one um, as a sort of reserve base, kitchen, lab, um, room. Uh, we jury rigger uh, a tarpaulin roof um, onto the top of it and do all our cooking and all our, um, all our data crunching. Um, in there we run all our um, electronics off a solar panel fortunately this week so far it's been gloriously sunny so yeah we're having no trouble keeping radios and marine radios and iPhones and uh, lighting um, charged uh, unfortunately it's not always like this some weeks are incredibly challenging it rains continuously there isn't a lot of incidents sunlight coming down um, and we sometimes struggle to keep everything charged but um, but hey that's island life for you I'm afraid yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, how do you feel when you're on the islands um, how do I feel um, it's a mixture of um, of elation really because um, those of us who've been to uh, the Trestish Isles always want to come back because um, even if they weren't one of the biggest seabird colonies in the UK, um, they would still be uh, utterly beautiful. Um, and that mm. combination of being utterly beautiful but also absolutely jam-packed with amazing wildlife, and it's not just seabirds, it's otters and basking sharks and uh, cetaceans and dolphins and um, this and that and the other, it's just... Uh, you know, an astonishing wildlife spectacle here. Um, plus, it's drop dead gorgeous. So I, I really feel, yeah. uh, you know, excited and elated when I get back here. And are there any particular memories that stand out for you over the years that you've been coming? Um, I yeah, one or two, I guess. <laughs> um, we do a lot of storm petrol ringing here, um, and. Um, you can on occasion catch an, can catch an awful lot of storm petrels on still um, overcast nights um, that's very very busy um, when you're catching lots of storm petrels overnight the trouble with still overcast nights on the Cheshire Isles is uh, that's when all the midges come out so um, I've had some pretty challenging 
um, nights ringing storm petrels uh, and being absolutely bitten to death by midges. I've also had beautiful daytimes when I've sat here and watched bottlenose dolphins following boats around and um, six basking sharks at once, which was a real mm. highlight one day, and um, otters um, teaching their cubs how to fish um, one day as well. So, uh, yeah, plenty of highlights. White-tailed eagles flying over, you name it, you know. It's, uh, yeah, plenty. There's usually something pretty special that happens every day, isn't yeah. there? Yeah. Have you had anything go wrong, not disastrously, life-threateningly wrong, but wrong that's, you know, been a useful lesson? Um, we've left important bits of equipment behind, I was going to say on the mainland, but it's not the mainland, on the Isle of Mull, if Mull is the mainland. Yeah. Um, yeah, so on occasion we've left important bits of kit on Mull, um, which has sometimes scuppered the work we've been trying to do. Um, we sometimes left important food on mull, which is a bit disappointing. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, silly things like that. Yeah. All right. I think that'll do. Yeah, good. That's great. Thanks. So, as you just heard Tim explain, we were on the island for a week surveying the burrows of the Manx Shearwater. And I managed to take a few recordings of some of us out doing the surveying playing the recordings of the Manx Shearwater down the burrow and even getting a response as well. So what I'm doing is I've just found a burrow that looks pretty much like a rabbit burrow in amongst the bluebells and the bracken and I'm just going to play the recording of a Manx Shearwater call down the burrow to see whether or not I get a response. Jamie's just found me a puffin skull. And there you can hear the Max Shearwater responding. Let's see if we can get it to go again. So that one is a positive. As well as surveying each of the burrows that we could find across the entire island, we surveyed a calibration plot that we set up near to camp every single morning. And the calibration plot had about a hundred or so burrows or what looked like burrows in it, and we surveyed that repeatedly every day throughout our entire week on the island. The point of surveying the calibration plot every single day was to, over time, get an average response rate from the Manx Shearwaters in those burrows that we regularly surveyed and to even out things like the impact of bad weather or something like that or Manx Shearwaters being away at sea. And then you can calibrate your responses or your results from the rest of the island against that calibration plot. I'm sure that explanation probably isn't scientifically perfect, but that's roughly my understanding of it as a non-scientist anyway. Each of the burrows on the calibration plot had a little cane next to it, which we put a piece, piece of uh, masking tape around the top of, and we numbered each one. So here you can hear Jamie and me uh, surveying burrow number 78 on the calibration plot and finding that on that particular day it was a positive response, which means that we got a 
a response from the Manx Shearwater down borough number 78. I think you stopped the recording, yeah? Positive. 78 positive. Dad? 78, 78 positive. As well as surveying the Manx Shearwaters on the island, one of our daily morning rituals was to do the daily log, which was recording the various different bird species and species of other types as well, plants, butterflies, moths, mammals, uh, that people had seen on the island. And some days that ranged from the uh, the mundane and the regular and birds like twite and meadow pipit and skylark and hooded crow all became fairly regular through to the slightly more unusual and exciting like peregrine falcons arctic skewers and uh, i was lucky enough myself to see one of the very few records for the island in history of wood pigeon so here's a little bit of us doing the daily log one morning just to give you a flavor of what that's like most to catch uh, presents. Wait, wait. Moth for you there. Yeah. Did, um, didn't uh, Robin's wife see a corn crate today? Judith. Yes, she did. But you it was here. It, it was here. Just the one. Yeah. Okay, put it down. Well, it's the same one we've all been hearing, so. Oh, okay. So, oyster uh, catch the present. No counts done or anything. peanuts. Ooh, mm. where's the net behind? Where's the net, Jamie? It's behind you. There's a good moth there. Yeah, yeah I know. Could be a first for the island. No, no, no. no, it's not. On the ground. No, we've got the moth. It was actually. Yeah, it's been on that moth. It's disappeared into that clump of grass in the corner somewhere. I can't see it flying there. Can you multitask that? Can you do the log and catch moth at the same time? Probably not. <laughs> I think you have to stop for a minute. Okay. No, it's alright. It's what you call a dynamic log. We're adding to it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wait. I'm ready to spring into action. Okay. Ring plumber, any advance on one? One, one. Down below.
One of the most exciting moments during my entire week on the island was one day when we were out surveying and I spotted a cave in a sort of cliff face up on one of the ledges. Um, I nearly didn't go over and explore it. I thought it looked far too big for there to possibly be a Manx Shearwater in it. It was a cave rather than a burrow. But for some reason, I decided to go over and have a look. And what I found was that at the very back of the cave, there was, in fact, a burrow, which narrowed quite dramatically towards the end. And you're about to hear what happened next when I went over and had a look in that cave and down that burrow. You got it? Okay. Oh, it's a bit pungent. Yes, it is a bit. Shall I show you in a bit now? Take it out. Oh, played it, it noticed that I was playing it, got up, turned around and tucked its egg back underneath it, but didn't respond. Maybe it's because it's got an egg so they're not So we know that they have eggs at this time of year. I reckon they're not, the ones with eggs aren't responding. We can say that about that one, yeah. But I mean, if you had an egg, why would you respond? Um, well... Because that would just give away your location, wouldn't it? Also, only one. There were there wasn't more than one. I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean that they only have broods of one. But oh, okay. I didn't know that. Even though, So, just to explain, rather thrillingly, just in the course of our standard surveying, I spotted a cave at the base of the rock face and decided to have a peer in. And at the back of the five or six metre cave, there was a smaller hole, and inside that smaller hole was a Manx shearwater that I could very plainly see. Didn't even need to play the recording to know that it was there. Incidentally, we did play the recording and it didn't respond, which is interesting. And after Jamie had taken a photograph, I went in for a closer look myself and to play the recording. And while I was playing the recording, it definitely noticed, got up, turned around, and when it did so, I could see it very clearly tucking an egg back under itself. So, something that has very rarely been seen, a Manx Shearwater brooding an egg, which is amazing.
It's an absolutely gorgeous day today. It's Tuesday, and we've been spending most of the day surveying Manx Shearwater Burrows. Same today as every other day. Uh, Jamie, Tim, and me in one team, and Ross and Dennis in another, covering a completely different part of the island. Uh, Jamie, Tim, and me have been spending most of the day in and around an area called Shearwater Gully, which is a steep. Uh, a steep gully that runs down to the beach and to the sea and we're doing all the land above that and today we've had a couple of good unusual bird sightings two swifts flew through and I even saw a wood pigeon which Tim thinks is uh, maybe only the second or third record for the island which may not sound that unusual but out here actually your common birds like blue tits Great tits, robins, blackbirds, wood pigeons are all pretty unusual because there's just not the habitat for them. So they're pretty much restricted to the mainland. So seeing one of those is a pretty good tick, as bird watchers say. No sign of any exciting cetaceans so far. We've had dolphin on almost every other day, but plenty of the usual stuff and Tim and Jamie are just on the slopes slightly above me and a great skewer a huge sort of gull like bird that's brown all over and can be fairly aggressive to to gulls bigger than itself has just landed above Jamie so it's just gone to say hello to it and I'm going to keep on recording the results of them playing Manx Shearwater calls down burrows in the ground I just thought I'd quickly run through a few bits of the kit that I've brought with me or bought even for this this trip. So we're camping on an uninhabited Scottish island for a week where, despite the incredible weather we've had this week, it can be pretty extreme at times. And I know that in previous years, the same group who've come here have had to deal with yeah, some fairly extreme storm conditions. Um, but there are also some essentials to this kind of camping, wild camping, that uh, I found pretty useful over the course of this week. So I just thought I'd share a, a couple of those. So first is my new Snug Pack Ionosphere tent, which I think I've talked about in other bits of this episode. Depends on how I edit it. But um, I'm really pleased with this one-man uh, small, compact, very easy to put up, very sturdy and hardy tent. Uh, so that's a must for me. Secondly has been my Anchor Solar Power Port, uh, which I brought with me, which is just a small fold-away set of four solar panels. They really don't take up much more than the size of a large book in my luggage or in my camping bag. But you fold those out, and it's got a USB port that you can plug almost anything into these days um, and charge your devices, at least when there's good sunny weather. Or well, there's some sunshine, in fact. It seems to work in fairly dull sunlight. So that's been really good. I've been able to charge my iPhone in the course of about an hour. And I've also bought a USB charger for my camera batteries which has meant that I've been able to recharge my camera batteries throughout the week as well. So that's been great, another big tick. I've also bought a Finesse City Titanium Spork, because obviously when you're camping, food is essential. And it's just a really neat little fork-spoon combo that I've been finding really useful 
for eating my meals throughout the week. And I also want to give a big plug to my new Zambalan boots. Uh, I forget what model I went for in the end. Uh, so they're made by Zambalan, which is an Italian company. And I went for one of the slightly higher-end sets of hiking boots because I do a lot of walking and I found that for my last pair, which basically fell apart after about 10 years, putting a bit of money into buying a slightly more expensive pair was definitely worth it in terms of durability and comfort. So I've bought these Zambalans. I'll put the model in the notes accompanying this episode. And they've proven really comfortable so far. I've got a little bit of um, a little bit of pain around my heels, but I think that's just because I'm still wearing them in. This is only the third or the fourth time that I'm, uh, I've worn them, and I've been pushing them pretty hard this week. Um, they've got fantastic grip. Other than that, they're very, very comfortable. And the other great thing about Zambalans is that they, that they use a Norwegian stitched sole, which means that as, a, as opposed to most hiking boots these days, the sole is stitched rather than glued to the body of the boot which means that when it comes to purchasing a new sole, when the existing one is worn out, it's much easier for a cobbler to, or for a company that can, for an outdoor repair company, to uh, detach the old sole and reattach a new one. So a big thumbs up to my new Zambalans. And then finally, I just wanted to mention the tin mug, plate and bowl that my grandparents have lent me, which have proven fantastic. I'm just sitting here right now on the top of a cliff, enjoying a morning cup of tea out of my tin mug. So if you're going away camping anywhere, whether it's wild camping or even to a campsite, don't forget your tin, mug, plate and bowl. And I've also found that initially I thought maybe I'd just bring the mug and eat some of my meals out of that. But actually, we've had a much greater variety of food and it would have been pretty difficult to fit all of it into the mug. So definitely go with a combo of a mug and a plate or a mug and a bowl or even bring all three if you can. Jamie, what were what were one or two of the best moments yesterday and today for you? Uh, well, today probably finding this um, long fin pilot whale jaw. Can you describe it? Well, it looks a bit odd, doesn't it? It's like it's a bit broken on one end, and it's got little tooth sockets in, but in a really weird angle. It's quite um, hard to describe it. And what makes you think it's um, it's pilot whale? Uh, well, it's definitely a marine mammal because it's really big and it's shaped like a dolphin or a small whale jaw. And also it was found right next to where we found a longfin pilot whale skull last year. Ah, the one that you mentioned before. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what about yesterday? Anything good happened yesterday? Yesterday. Yeah, I saw an otter. Ah, nice. Yeah, on Coronunga in the um, pool. And then it swam out into the sea. What yeah, else? Imagine the cave with the magic water. Oh yeah, there was a um, <laughs> there was a. I found 
there was a cave <laughs> that Matt found and you could see a little burrow and you could see all the way in. I thought that was the day after last. But anyway, was you could see all the way in and we saw um, a Manx Shear water which was sitting on an egg that Matt saw. And it was really cool. Yeah. Mm, it was very cool. I think that was one of my favourite moments of the trip. Yeah. It was good. Anything else? You found some good dead stuff yesterday as well, didn't you? Down um, at the bottom of Shag Alley. Yeah, we found a shag skeleton that you've now got and mm. a lot of puffin wings. I just left them all behind pretty much mm. because there were so many of them. Yeah. And there's two puffin skulls on the wall. Yeah, they're slowly starting to adorn camp, aren't they? Yeah, and also a raven feather, really nice raven feather. Oh, yeah, that looks quite nice. Yeah. Nice. And some manxie wings. Mm. And I missed something while I was asleep, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A uh, white-tailed sea eagle flew really close to camp, yeah. right over your tent. <laughs> I'm surprised I didn't notice the shadow. Yeah. Oh, well. I've seen plenty of eagles. That is a shame to miss it, though. Yeah. Could okay. have probably got a nice photo of it. I probably could have done, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. Thanks, Jamie. This is going to make a good episode, I think. The island's a pretty different place at night because it doesn't completely go to sleep, but all the sounds change. And as well as the Manx shearwaters, quite often, particularly on a wet night, using that cover of the weather to change over and swap and go out to sea and feed. So you get huge numbers of Manx shearwaters flying what feels like just above your tent, calling as they go. You quite often get snipe drumming and calling and circling above the camp. You get the wailing of the seals. And one of the other sounds that used to be heard around camp and keep a lot of us awake throughout the night, and we began to curse it a little bit towards the end of the week when it was giving us some fairly sleepless nights, was a fairly special one that's pretty rare across the UK these days so it was very magical and one of the most poignant wildlife moments certainly of this year if not of my life to hear this sound every time I got up in the night to to answer the call of nature or when I turned over in my sleeping bag and woke myself up and heard it wandering about amongst the tents so just have a brief listen to this very special noise. That, if you haven't guessed it, was a corncrake, which is a member of the rail family that once used to be pretty widespread across the UK, but due to the loss of the kind of wetland meadow habitat that they rely on, and also due to the intensification of farming practices, which makes it pretty hard for them to successfully raise chicks when those chicks are often run over by tractors mean that they're now confined to just a handful of places in England and to some of the remoter parts of Scotland like Lunga. Um, So it was pretty special having barely seen or heard a corncrake before in my life to be kept awake most nights by that male one wandering around camp and living up to its scientific name of Crex Crex, 
with the wonderful call that it makes. my final night asleep on the island on this trip at least and in the background you might be able to hear the wailing of the seals as they sing to each other which sailors were quite understandably uh, quite understandably used to think was the singing of mermaids or sirens trying to lure them onto the rocks it's pretty misty tonight and the corn crake is singing away a Manx Shearwater is calling from its burrow fairly nearby and the storm petrels are calling from the from among the rocks of the wall of the bothy that we've been sitting in and supping the last of our whiskey. Tomorrow we pack up and we leave the island. And this evening we've watched porpoises and otters and fertled some more puffins. But I'll be back soon to Lunga and to Puffin Island. Why don't you start by telling me when you first came to Treshnish and what it was like then? Wasn't very different, but anyway, are we uh, are we on? Yeah, we're going. Right, yeah. Well, I uh, I got involved with it in 1994. There'd been a Treshnish group since 1971 at the time of the first seafarer bird censuses, and um, various people had been involved in it, and by and about. 1994, it was getting a bit in the doldrums, and a guy called Simon Walker from Worcestershire rejuvenated it, and um, he asked me if I wanted to get involved in it. Mm. The first thing we did was to sit down and look at all the um, records and things back to 71 when it first started, because nobody had ever written it up, and we wrote up a a fairly basic paper to cover the um, the ringing details and the population counts and things. And once we'd done that, um, from there on, we've had a, an expedition on here every year of some sort. Generally, it's been a general expedition at the end of June for a week in order to census the, um, the different parts of uh, Lunga mm-hmm. and Shastil, if possible. Mm and uh, sometimes the other islands if there was a need for it through a national census or something. And this particular year is one of these years where there is going to be a complete seabird census over the whole of the British Isles, wherever there are suitable seabird colonies, 
and because of the nature of the game it does involve doing several different trips um, the basic week that we do at the end of June covers most of the birds that you can look at in daytime and count in daytime by going around and looking at what's on the cliffs mm -hmm. but the um, the other two really difficult ones as you well know are the Manxia water and the storm petrel mm. because of their nasty habits they, um, they go about at night and uh, they hide under the ground <laughs> <laughs> so it makes it difficult so in May we do the Manxia waters because that's the prime time for the uh, activity and pair making and responses and things and the um, the petrels don't really get going until later in the season it's usually late June July August time when the petrels are active so again there's going to be a separate um, session this year which isn't done every year uh, in order to survey those uh, the shearwaters are relatively restricted to areas of the islands where you've got steep slopes that they can use to fly off because they're not very good on the ground and also deep soil that they can burrow into. Mm. Storm petrels are a bit less particular. They can nest in little crevices under rocks on the boulder beaches and on the um, cracks in the buildings and walls that are scattered all over the island. So, although probably the shearwaters are more difficult to do, the petrels are more widespread and they occur on nearly, well, all of the islands, I mm -hmm. would say, in varying degrees, varying numbers. Um, as I say, I first came in 94 and we did ordinary annual visits from there onwards right through to the present day. Mm -hmm. and, um, in addition to that, there was a big survey in the period 1999 to 2001, which again covered all the things that we're doing this year. Um, on that particular session, I was there in May for a week, and then I was here for a fortnight in the um, end of June time. And um, I can tell you that the worst thing when you're on this island, just, um, you've been on it for a week, you're filthy, <laughs> <laughs> you want some beer, <laughs> and what you find is that everybody's going off, and you're staying. <laughs> <laughs> and there's another lot coming on who've been drinking all week, and uh, <laughs> they're nice and clean and sweet smelling. <laughs> you've got another week of it. <laughs> so I don't recommend a fortnight. <laughs> But uh, no, it's it's a marvellous island. It's um, well, a group of islands. It's it's got lots of history. It's tied up with the um, the sort of ancient um, Celtic um, kingdoms that existed in Northern Ireland and the Western Isles and Norse influences because the whole of Scotland, Northern Scotland, at one point was under Norse control. Mm. And Norwegian kings didn't let go of it until about 1400. And um, it's, as I say, it's got a fascinating um, history, and uh, there's quite a lot of ecclesiastical history on Carnabergs in particular. There's some old chapel cells and things. It was associated with the Abbey at Iona. Right, okay. And what is it personally for you that keeps you coming back to the islands? Well, I've managed to break myself of the habit because. <laughs> 
you, you get to my age and it's very difficult physically. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's quite a rough island and quite steep and I haven't been coming regularly since about 2014 or so. But it, it, it's very, very difficult. You know, you, you get to the time of year when they're getting ready to go and you want to go as well, you know. Mm. Yeah. You know you can't, but you want to go as well. Mm. It gets a hold of you, it really does. Mm. And um, so it's, it's nice to come back even on an occasional basis. And uh, I thought this would be a good one to do because it'll be another 10 years before they do another of these full surveys. And yeah. I should certainly be too old to do it by then. But for me, it's um, it's. I think you can encapsulate it in about four sounds. It's all about the different sounds that you get and the, the sort of things that you hear as you're lying in your tent at night. Mm. And you've got the seals out on the skerries, which to me is the best thing of all. You've got the inevitable corn crake. <laughs> <laughs> the incessant corn crake. <laughs> you've got the sound of the bank shear water. <laughs> and you've got the cheering of the storm petrels. And you've got the, the drumming and woodwind sounds of the snipe. Yeah. And that's it. But then visually, it's a marvellous place. I mean, you, you can see, as you stand up by the cottages, the old village where we make our camp, you can see a whole panorama of the Inner Hebrides from right down um, Dura and um, Isla down there, Colonsay. Uh, you've got Iona and the, the Ross of Mall. Out on the out on the horizon, you've got Colin Tyree and a great long line. And then, when the weather's clear enough, you can see nearly all of the small isles. You've got um, You've got Rum, which is the biggest that's close. You've got uh, Muck, Canna and um, Egg all grouped together. And on a really clear day, you can see the coolings of Sky at the back. Mm. And you've got the lighthouses, which are nice. There's, um, there's an automatic light now on Carnaburg, which was never here when I first came. Right. It's a relatively recent thing. Uh, but apart from that, there's a lighthouse on Ardemirkin, which is the biggest point of the mainland that you can see to the north. You can't yeah. see further than that. And there's a, a lighthouse on the bottom of um, Tyree. So it, at whatever time of the day you're here, whether it's the early morning when the sun's just coming up and the sky's all pink, um, or whether it's during the day in full daylight when you've got otters and you've got um, cetaceans coming in, um, dolphins coming in when the boat comes in and uh, sitting on the bow over the boat. Um, you've got porpoises. Later in the summer you get basking sharks. Mm. If you get really lucky you might get an orca. Mm -hmm. um, minky whales we get regularly off Hart Rock. And um, there's a lot going on in the daytime and then at night as I said there's all these different sounds and there's the chance to go and catch storm petrels and uh, Make sheer waters and things. We, we were on here one year. And yeah. We were netting. Uh, we were catching birds down at Hart Rock, which is where we do most of the catching on the main trip. And the tall ships race came past. Yeah. It came round the bottom end of the islands, 
went over into the Tyree Passage with a view to getting out to the open Atlantic. And there must have been six or eight of these big um, square rigged windjammers and things. And absolutely fantastic. It was a lovely night and uh, it was about nine o'clock at night just it was starting to get dead. And out they went and it was magnificent. And over the years there's been lots of different people. Um, quite a lot of them quite eminent in the ornithological world. But um, on here, you know, we're just we're just a bunch of dirty people. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly drink, by the end of the week. Trying to drink as much whiskey as <laughs> trying to get through all the whiskey, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there must be a lot, but are there any particular memories of people or wildlife from over the years that stand out, or the weather maybe as well? Yeah, there was, if you talk about weather, it was one year we were here. Um, the island is oriented southwest to northeast, and the the, um, the village was set in the shelter of the highest ground. To protect it from the south westerly gales, which are the prevailing winds. Right. And we always put our tents up in the lee of the village because it's the safest place. We've had no weather to speak of this week, but um, sometimes it can be rough. Yeah. And we got caught out one year. We'd gone off down the end, the other end of the island, and the weather changed, and it went from a southwesterly to quite a strong wind. Went from a southwesterly to a northwesterly, which yeah. means it's coming in deadly towards the unprotected side of the tents and things. Yeah. And it got windier and it got windier and windier. And back in those days, we weren't quite so sophisticated. We didn't have the structure on the roof of the Bothy that we have now. Mm. And instead of a, a good reinforced top hauling with eye holes and things, we just got some um, builder's membranes that they use for putting down to make um, a damp course and they stretched like hell, so it was it was a bit of a rough roof. And uh, anyway, we went to bed about 11 o'clock-ish or thereabouts, and uh, it was still very, very windy and getting windier. And I think it was about 3 o'clock in the morning when the tent started to collapse. Gosh. And I remember being awake and sitting in my tent, and I could see the tent poles at the other end of the tent, and they were change in shape. They were, <laughs> they were going from a normal shape to a sort of a two-thirds over the one side shape and then they'd come back again with the windies and then there'd be another gust and they'd come over <laughs> and do it again. And I watched them for about an hour and then eventually one of them broke. <laughs> and I thought, this is no good. <laughs> so I got out of the tent, I flattened the tent down, poles out, flattened it down, we covered it with bamboo or I covered it with bamboo poles, I couldn't see anybody else, and um, bamboo and rocks and things to stop it blowing away. Yeah. And got my sleeping bag and uh, traipsed into the bothy to sit in my chair for the rest of the night. Mm. And there were about three of them in there already, and they all had the same experience. And eventually, I think by the end of the night, there's only about one tent left standing. Yeah. But luckily, it was towards the end of the week, and we managed to lash things up again to... Um, after a fashion too. But that's, that's the worst weather I've seen on here. I've known 
torrential rain. I've had weeks when there were only two good days that you could go out and do your survey. And I mean, it's it's a difficult island to survey at the best of times, but if you've got to do it in Wellingtons and um, you know oil skins, and it's um, yeah. it's very difficult, particularly on these um, steep slopes. It's been hard this week, but I feel like compared to bad weather, we've had it fairly easy actually. Yeah. The heat's been tough, but the only problem this week has been the heat and the fact that for whatever reason there hasn't been much wind and it's tended to bring out the midges. Yeah. yeah. We don't usually have a lot of trouble with midges, but when we do it can be really nasty. And any particularly strong or fond wildlife memories from over the years? Um, pretty well what I've said already, you know, as I say, we've had instances where the, um, where the dolphins come in with the boats and you can sit on the top of the cliff and watch them. Yeah. One of the best things I've ever seen is when we sat up on the, well, lay on the top of the cliffs one evening, watching the otter and two cubs working its way up the dirty inlet there. And you got really good views of them from above, you know, you don't often see them from above. And you could see what fish they were catching, mm. they were picking up dabs and little flatfish and, and gobies and things out of the holes in the rocks. And she was just teaching them to fish. And that was, that was nice. You get peregrines occasionally. Robin Ward and myself, when we were doing the 2000 major survey, we got onto the Dutchman's. Dutchman's being the distant um, pair of islands. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not easy to do, it's um, difficult to land, but Ian Morrison took us down in his boat and landed us in a rubber dinghy, a little rubber dinghy. It was before sort of the modern ribs and things. And um, we scrambled up there, we took one tent and um, minimum amount of food for spending a night because we wanted to see if there were any storm petrels and shear waters on there. Mm-hmm. But there's very little on there. It's, um, it's a spectacular rock. It's actually been used in films. There was, um, there was a film with Donald Sutherland called The Eye of the Needle, mm. which was filmed on there. Well, some of it was filmed on there. And I, I saw the film once as I was sitting at home with a <laughs> glass of beer. And, uh, was that before or after you'd been <laughs> on? <laughs> it was after I'd been on. Oh, and yeah. uh, all of a sudden this big thing came on. <laughs> 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 it's the Dutchman. They <laughs> called it something else, but that's what it was. Yeah. Um, but at all events, um, we were on there, but we didn't get much sleep because there was a peregrine falcon taking territory on the top of the ridge and it never, <laughs> never shut up all night. <laughs> Nearly as bad as the shearwater. But you do get to look at the different islands and um, even the little skerries in the middle. We spent a lot of time going round in a in an outboard um, looking for tern colonies and um, yeah. common ghouls and that's sort of a common ghoul colony out that way. But, um, it's just a magical place. I mean, the the logistics of getting here are interesting as well, because we've got people that come from all directions. We've got yeah. one lad from Holland, and we sometimes have to go into Glasgow Airport to pick him up. And uh, then there's uh, one from Northern Ireland that doesn't drive, and he gets a bus here. <laughs> God knows how he does it. But we pick him up in Oban usually, and... Uh, as I say, there's people from all parts of the country. A lot of it was originally Worcestershire and Birmingham. Mm. But um, we've had a lot from Durham, because some of the lads went to uni at Durham. 
and Robin Ward took over after Simon Walker died and he was Durham, he was working at Durham for most of his earlier career. But uh, as I said, we get, we get all kinds of people. Some of them, most of them are pretty good. Just occasionally you get one that you wish wasn't there. <laughs> we had one guy, I'm not going to know any names, but um, he came for a week and he, he didn't seem to think it was necessary to really have a tent. <laughs> now, as you've seen, we we have our own personal tents. And, yeah. Um, we live in the Bothy, well, yeah. he set up his little bivouac bag in the middle of the Bothy oh and we had to keep stepping over him all week. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he'd got another peculiar habit, he'd got a glass eye and he liked to take his glass eye out at the <laughs> dinner table and things like that. So we weren't too bothered when he went and we didn't invite him again. Yeah. Most people though are, are very good, I mean Andrew Carter that didn't come this time, he's accident prone. He leaves things in different places. He leaves himself on Shastri most of the time. About three times he's managed to get himself stranded on there. <laughs> and he's always losing things. He lost the he lost the book with all the notes in one. Okay. He was in a almost suicidal fit for about three days until we found <laughs> but, yeah, there's all sorts of people. You, you have a job to remember them all. Yeah. We had one guy that um, chap called Mike Smith. It's all right to name him because there's nothing discreditable about it. But uh, he liked his bacon crisp, <laughs> and he used to use all the gas. <laughs> and on the Thursday we ran out of gas. Oh gosh! And it was in the in those days we were using butane. Uh, sorry, yeah, butane, the blue stuff. Yeah. And we hadn't got any, but Simon Walker and myself were over on Shastil and we found a half full canister of propane. <laughs> now, <laughs> I used to work in the gas industry and the one thing you don't do is mess with mixing up the connections with butane and propane, but you know, you've got to do it. So yeah. we brought it back here and we put it outside the Wathi and we fed a tube through the wall <laughs> in case of any accident. And then, then we got some paper clips and jubilee clips and bits of gaffer tape and things like that. And we connected it up and stood well back. <laughs> but it did work. Yeah. I don't say it was efficient, but it did work and it got us through till the end of the week. And the the rusty canister is still up there. You can see it as you walk up by the um, by the bothy there. So all in all it's it's a place I've always it's always been a major significant thing in my birding activities because yeah. I, mean, I do all sorts of things but this summer trip to the Treshish is, is one, of the, one of the big things to me. Mm. And we haven't crunched the numbers yet but would you say there's any noticeable change for you having done the first, you know, between the first Shearwater Survey and this one? Well as you know there are, there are differences in the way the um, coefficients and um, equations are going to be done but um, it's not directly comparable but in terms of the base data which is you know sticking a recording in an entrance hole and seeing whether you do or you don't get a response um, what I can say is that we've got at least as many and I think significantly more birds responding Mm. um, than we did have on the first trip yeah 
Now, what will happen when you've done the coefficients? I'm not quite sure, but no. um, I think it's going to show that there are more than there were. Yeah. But I wouldn't like to go any further than that because, no, no, you no. know, it's all got to be subjected to... Um, Scientific scrutiny. All the technicians that, you know, the sort of theory theorists that like to stay at home and crunch the numbers whereas we go and climb at the bloody cliffs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm. I'd say there's no question but there's still a healthy thriving population among shearwater on here. Yeah. It certainly hasn't come to any harm. No. Cool. Well, it's been great working with you this week. And you. Thanks yeah. very much. You've done a great deal and uh, you've done very well at it I hope you'll be coming again oh, thank you very much well I'm back in July for the storm petrols and I think yeah. uh, are you doing the one week or? well I've, I've only signed up for, I've only taken the holiday for one at the moment mm. but actually last night Tim said if you want to come for the second week then you're more than welcome so I think as soon well, as I get back to work on Monday I may be looking at whether or not I can do do both you might want to bear in mind what I, what I said <laughs> I will bear that in mind fortnight, you get, make sure you've got plenty of beer <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I might I'm, pack differently. I'm not going on the June week, but I'm coming for the first week of the July. Oh, good! I'll see you again. Session, so I'll see you then. That's really good. Yeah, yeah. And I'm I, not entirely sure who's who's going to be on that. I know Tim's going on it. And, yeah. Uh, I'll be there for the first week. I'm going up to Nan Ron, which is another island up on the north coast. Yeah. Uh, with Ross. Yeah. And we'll be up there for a few days, and then. I've got days to kill before I come down here for the first Trashish week. Yeah. So I'm going over to um, Speyside for five days to oh, uh, nice. do a bit of general birding. Yeah. Find a hotel and uh, a bar. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds very good. Yeah. 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 If I'm if I'm allowed, I will definitely be back yeah. in future years. I think. Yeah. It's oh. amazing. I think you're just the sort of person that we want on this. I mean. Um, youth is the main thing because it is hard work mm, it's and hard uh, it's some of the hardest stuff I've ever done I mean I've, I find it quite quite difficult now so I don't do it very often but um, I do like to come if I can just mm. occasionally even if I can you know do the basic stuff yeah no I wouldn't have missed it and it's really fun but it's tough yeah you do work quite hard but um, it's it's very worthwhile. It's a good thing to do, and it's it's a fascinating thing to do. Well, it's been um, you know, hopefully the data is useful. It's good to do right. something that's only been done, you know, once every decade or two decades. Well, generally speaking, you know, now we've got nearly fifty years data on this island. Mm-hmm. And that's the sort of data set that not many people can. Yeah. And special moments like two days ago finding finding that Manx Shearwater down a cave and seeing it sitting yeah. on a nest on an egg. That's you know, that's the kind of moment you can't really Now there's this uh, there's this legend about the um, you know, the great Manx Shearwater spirit that lives in the middle of the island. Well, Jamie's there. been calling it the mother rather shearwater, yeah. It sounds as if you found it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hmm. All we need now is a boat. <laughs> All we need now is a boat to take Coming us up. home.
I really hope you enjoyed that conversation and you can find more of them at wildvoicesproject.org on Twitter at wildvoicesproj or by subscribing to the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks very much and until next time.